Friday, everyone. Welcome to Fantasy Baseball Today. Frank Stample here alongside Chris Towers and Scott White. Adam Azer bailed, but it's all good. Today on the show, we're talking about our all-star teams, or just our all-stars. We talked about this a little bit before the show started for the 2020 season, and Adam doesn't have one. So, ha, he's not on the show today. Scott White, how's it going? Did you eat enough lunch today? I want to make sure that you're not hangry for the show. <laughs> I had a salad this time, which to, to me is even less uh, gratifying than, than a can of soup would be, a can of soup with saltines especially. So I can't guarantee that I won't become hangry. However, if we keep it to only an hour, our chances improve. They improve. Chris Towers, you took part in trivia last night. How was that? That was really fun, yeah. I, uh, it was with the... Uh... Turn two podcast, Matt Williams, uh, a couple other guys were there, Nick Pollock from um, Pitcher List, and we just kind of had people answering trivia questions, and uh, one guy, MDRC and a bunch of numbers, uh, won a spot in the For the People Fantasy Baseball Today podcast league. Not the main one, but the better one. The better so, one, says Chris Towers. Chris, we're doing our our favorite players today on the show, our our as Scott would call it, our quintessential team for 2020. We have dubbed them the All-Stars. You are a big fan of vinyl and music. I would imagine you don't have a, a Smash Mouth vinyl, do you? No, I did have the Smash Mouth uh, smash hit album, uh, Fung You Mang, I believe was what it was called, the one that featured uh, Walking on the Sun, among other classic Smash Mouth uh, bangers. But I did not have it on vinyl. No, I would not. Uh, I would not spend any money on some Smash Mouth wax at this point in my life. That that doesn't make the cut. Smash Mouth does not make the cut for Chris Towers. I mentioned we're going to get into the All Stars. I have a little bit of a flashback Friday I want to do here at the top. Random players that we could just never quit. We'll get into your listener questions uh, via email, fantasybaseball at cbsi.com later on in the show, and we will also do some of the uh, Apple Podcast review questions that we had as well. Flashback Friday: obscure players that you could never quit. I have two players written down here, and this kind of sparked in my mind because, uh, Chris, the other day you were asking people to show screenshots of their oldest fantasy teams that they can find. And I went back and I looked through some of mine, and I consistently found Carlos Quentin and Michael Morse. And I, I can't explain it for the life of me, but for mm -hmm. Quentin, it seems like I was just always chasing that 2008. He had 288, 36 home runs, 100 RBI, and then never came close to that ever again. Nine-year career, played 130 or more games just twice in his career. Famously known for uh, kind of rushing the mound, bull rushing Zach Greinke, and then like shoulder thrusted him. Um, he broke his collarbone doing that, or did Greinke? Someone got hurt doing that. That's correct. Broke yeah, no, somebody's collarbone was broke. I, I couldn't remember if that was Carlos Quentin on the other end of that. Yeah. Because I got... 
I got really upset on the podcast the next day. <laughs> I talked about how he should go to jail. And uh, <laughs> that 2008 season, I think he broke his wrist like a like three weeks before the end of the season, maybe, and like would have probably won AL MVP if he hadn't. That that's my memory of the situation, at least. Uh, yeah. Oh, with that? No, that was that was the same year. No, 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 no. No, that's no. 2008. That was this. Yeah, the Carlos Quinton tackling Zach Granke. Carlos Quinton was not much of a anything anymore, right? No, but yeah. nobody really held out much hope well, for him at that point. I mean, his years with the it was when he was with the Padres, and and yeah. Granke I think was with the Dodgers, and uh, you know, Carlos Quinton did have an 877 and an 855 OPS in his first two years with the San Diego Padres. Uh, he yeah. Just, healthy yeah and, and yeah I, I carlos quentin was somebody i loved from his time as a diamondbacks prospect yep. and then he had that great year with the white Sox, where he was in the mvp conversation and i i mean he could qualify for me too i'm gonna have to go with somebody else but i was i was very much a fan of carlos quentin in those early years and he just never could recapture it I'm happy you guys came to my defense here for my love of Carlos Quentin. I will throw it out there. Uh, an 831 OPS for his career, so not too shabby for Carlos Quentin. Michael Play discipline was incredible for him. That's, that's what I liked so much about him. He did not strike out much for a power guy. Yeah, 252 career average, 347 career OBP, so... You know, nearly a 100-point difference there. Uh, solid play discipline for Carlos Quinn. He was just one that I was I was always chasing that 2008. I didn't play fantasy until fantasy baseball until 2009, which was, I'm showing my age here, but my senior year of high school. So I didn't really get the Carlos Quentin effect. I was just always kind of chasing that year. Uh, but Michael Morse is someone that I, I did get the Michael Morse effect because in 2011, I had him on my team for that season. 303, 31 home runs. 95 RBI, famously known for also hitting the game-tying home run for the San Francisco Giants in the 2014 NLCS. They went on to win the World Series that year. So I think Michael Morse probably has a piece of the heart of San Francisco Giants fans as well. But Quentin and Michael Morse were names that just instantly stood out to me. The thing that that comes to mind for Michael Morse, this is kind of random, but uh, he was a gigantic human. Six foot five, two hundred and forty five oh, yeah. pounds was what he was listed at. He came up as a shortstop, which is amazing to me because he is the slowest baseball player I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. It, it is amazing. It is Maybe amazing it's to just think because like he was on the Marlins late in his career when he was thirty three years old, and and that's the the image that sticks out in my head because that's probably when I watched him the most. But he like could not run. It was just an amazing thing to watch how tall is mike morris because he is six a, five six five He's massive yeah, there his I, nickname is the beast according to baseball reference yeah so the the pi, the pirates have a shortstop prospect yes named o'neill cruz who is six foot seven he's which, much more athletic than uh <laughs> Well, he's yeah, I mean, certainly at his age. Nobody really gives him much of a chance to stay at shortstop, I don't think. But they're, uh, you know, they're, he, he's somebody who, depending on, you look at the scouting reports, some guys think he could develop into a 40 homer type, which Mike Morse almost was in, at his very short peak. Uh, so I kind of, I don't know, I kind of see a similarity there. So my picks for this uh, would be... I'll start with two Marlins, uh, two guys that were homer picks, but also I just 
I truly believe they were going to be stars. One was Jeremy Hermida, and I was not alone in that. Jeremy Hermida's, I think it's 2005 season at Double A is like an all-time great minor league season. He was 20 or 21. He walked like 120 times or something. He, it was an awesome season. And I, there's a theme. The guys that I love that I can't quit are guys with really good. It's like Matt Weeders, who ended up being a pretty good player, but certainly not the superstar I thought he was going to be. Um, and it's just, it's a lot of guys with play discipline. And then the other for me, a pitcher, Wrecking Alaska burned me so many times. <laughs> like, I am biased against control artists who get hit hard, uh, like Shane Bieber. Just because of Ricky Nolasco, he burned me so hard. I, I believed he was going to be one of the best pitchers in baseball. And he had one season where he really was. And then everything after that was horrible. And so I can't get over my bias against that type of pitcher. Ricky Nolasco, that, that's a good one. That's a good one. That, that's one who could probably make my list too. Joe Musgrove I, is yeah. kind of in that mold too, Chris, where really good control, but just gives up too many hits. So... Look, I guess I'm with you because I keep falling for Joe Musgrove. I keep waiting for it to happen. Uh, the other day on the pod, Scott mentioned looking for black ink on the baseball reference pages, and I pulled up Ricky Nolasco. There is one black ink. It is 2011 for the hits column. He led Major League Baseball in hits allowed with 244. So Do you're right, Chris. For fewest walks? Yeah. Yeah, they, they'll show the league leader in... in... Okay, yeah. He, I, I think he, they do. He went to he he said one year he wanted to walk only ten hitters, which uh that was the year he the year after he broke out or you know, fooled us by breaking out and then never had an ERA below four point four eight except for one season ever again. <laughs> uh but yeah, that he he's he has ruined a lot of pitchers for me. That's actually I'm not sure if they do do because if they do black ink for most hits for a pitcher, you feel like it, would, it should be the op. I guess they can't do fewest hits because obviously that would be contingent. Yeah, it would have well, to be I, like I qualified know. starting pitcher. And yeah, they, I, I know if it's hits per nine, black ink on hits per nine is the lowest hits per nine. It's yeah, not they the highest hits because the only uh, they do black ink for rate stats, but yeah. the the only black ink on Carlos Silva's baseball reference page they're really remembering some guys here uh it's year he gave up 38 home runs in 2006 which is the year after he set a uh national league era so like 1904 later or whatever the the era is record for fewest walks in a season by a qualifying pitcher he walked nine batters in 108.1 innings scott do you have a 71 do you have a quick mention scott was a guy who uh like a four four K per nine rate would be good for him. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh, <laughs> Scott. Do you have a quick mention of uh, an obscure player that you can never quit? Uh, so I have two here as well. They're both named Miller. One goes back before the time I was even working for CBS, and that's Wade Miller, who primarily pitched for the Astros and had a great partial season when he first came up. The next two years were both pretty good, and like I was on him that year he came up. Uh, that was 2000. I was on him. He was a fixture in my lineup. So I, 
Uh, actually, it was that. I'm sorry. It was that Frank first full year. Was not born. 2001. He went 16 and eight with a 3.40 ERA and 7.8 K per nine. And you have to understand how much things have changed in that time. 7.8, like mid really seven good. per nine, Ks per nine was like really good for a starting pitcher. Um, but like Wade Miley, his career arc just it was like the downslope of a roller coaster. He just he had some injuries and just was never the same. But I kept giving him a chance. The other was Brad Miller, which podcast, longtime podcast listeners will know well my <laughs> obsession with Brad Miller and how some some years he was bad Miller, but then he'd have stretches where he'd become Brad Miller again. <laughs> there you go. Brad Miller and Wade Miller. Uh, honestly, I had no idea who Wade Miller was until I pulled up his baseball reference page. Uh, but again, showing my age a little bit there here on the show. All-star you- teams. We all have published our all-star teams on CBSSports.com, and you can go and check those out. And this was supposed to be representative of our favorite players at each position, how we're attacking the draft in terms of our priorities. And comparatively to you guys, I think I said this yesterday on the show that we were going to try to avoid all early-round picks. I feel like I chose a bunch of early-round picks, so I apologize (laughs) for that. But um, did yesterday's mock draft, Scott, did that change or reinforce any of the players that you have on your all-star team? No, yesterday's mock draft, I kind of I kind of uh, went counter to my usual instincts. I guess I was just trying to experiment a little. So I think only two players from my from the quintessential Scott White team are actually on the roster in that that league we put together yesterday. So I wanted to look at one infielder, one outfielder, one starting pitcher, and one relief pitcher from each of our all-star rosters, we'll call them here, uh, because we did use the a head-to-head points roster construction when filling out our favorite players. So one catcher, first base, second base, third base, shortstop, three outfielders, a utility bat, and then five starting pitchers, and two relief pitchers. So Chris, why don't you give us uh, maybe one outfielder here that you haven't talked about as much on the podcast, or maybe you've talked about all these guys a ton already. uh, But if there's a name that you haven't talked about enough on the podcast that you would like to do so now and reveal why he is Uh, your favorite player at the position. For outfield, I've pretty much talked about these guys all quite a bit, Uh, but I'll, I'll go with, I feel like we've talked about Nick Castellanos least lately. My other two were Fran Mil Reyes and Kyle Tucker, and we've talked about them a ton lately. Uh, Castellanos, you know, I think we saw a bit of what he's capable of after the trade to Chicago last season. I'm not expecting him to put up a, an OPS north of 1,000 in a full season, but it's certainly not out of the question. He is someone who hits the ball reasonably hard, but one thing that he does really well, I was looking this up on fan graphs earlier today, Uh, His average launch angle is actually, he has one of the lowest spreads in baseball. Basically, he doesn't hit like a ton of pop flies. He doesn't hit a ton of like ground balls right into the dirt. He he has one of the more consistent launch angles. And so that's why you look at it and you say, well, he's got like an 89 mile per hour average exit velocity, which is fine. Uh, But his hard hit rate is higher than his average exit velocity relative to the league. And it's because he's a really consistent hitter. He hits the ball to all fields. He's he's got you know a really even spray chart, especially on on his fly balls to the outfield, and that was what held him back in Comerica. Comerica, you know, down the lines, it's not so tough, especially in left field. It rates out as a decent 
uh, home run park for right-handed hitters, but he's not a pull hitter on his fly balls. He is a an all-fields hitter, and if you overlay his fly balls over Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati, uh, he you it's not hard to see him hitting 35 plus home runs there. I the the ceiling is something like what JD Martinez did in 2019, I think. Chris, you mentioned that he's not a pool hitter. Would you say he's also not a dead pool hitter? Well, he is a he is a pool hitter in uh, Arizona and All right. also in Miami before this year. They took away the pool. So, uh, he's now taking they, away everything. Now there's only one park in which he's a pool hitter. The pool, Derek Jeter the pool wants shots. a sterile playing environment. I guess they all want a sterile playing environment at this point, right? Yeah, I don't know if a pool would be great during a pandemic. No, no. Uh, um, Chris, I did ask you for uh, an infielder, but I do appreciate you giving us an outfielder. Oh, uh, okay, I wasn't listening. That's <laughs> all right. Uh, Scott, would you like to uh, give us an infielder, uh, maybe someone you haven't uh, spoke about enough here on the podcast? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we talk about these players a lot. That's that's uh, that's how they get to be on the quintessential Scott White team. But maybe the one we've talked about the least on the infield is Josh Bell. Is that does that ring true to you, Chris? Yeah, we haven't talked about him much at all late, yeah. especially. Yeah. So Josh Bell, he has, you know, kind of kind of a theme of the Scott White team is is that it all of these players broke out last year, and I feel like. The the pushback to that, the the skepticism is maybe going a little too far to the point they actually become value picks. And Josh Bell is another example of that. Josh Bell is a little different, though, because he's not far removed from being a top prospect. He kind of follows a more natural progression that would maybe make him more believable than some of the others. But he had a pretty, pretty, pretty bad second half. Disappointing second half, especially compared to the first half. A couple things to remember, though. If he was that first half version for a whole season, he would probably be like a second, third round pick now because that's how good he was in the first round. And so, you know, he's going, I think, round seven on average. So just based on that pretty big discount. Other thing to remember is he actually... It was actually the middle of the season where things went really bad for him. He he had a pretty good recovery at the end. Final two months, his OPS, I think, was 893. It was almost 900. And that's versus a season-long OPS of 936. So he kind of started to get back on track. He also has addressed what went wrong when he was struggling. Um, he he he's, He kind of got frustrated about the way he was performing against breaking balls so he started looking for breaking balls and started getting beat on fastballs because of that so he just kind of he changed his approach in a way that turned out to be catastrophic and it seems like the data backs it up um, some of the research I've seen seems to back up what he's saying so if he understands what went wrong for him and he's already partially corrected it I, I feel pretty good about his chances of getting back on track and being a stud first baseman again. I think his overall season line is probably more realistic than that first half season line, but still you're talking 277 batting average, 37 home runs, 116 RBI, definitely a stud at that position. And um, somebody who I'm happy to take as my starter. 
The other thing I want to point out is the two months when things really went poorly for him uh, were June and July. He had a 764 OPS in June, a 769 OPS in July. His strikeout rate didn't really spike in those months. Uh, he was actually below a strikeout per game in each, and his walk rate was fine. His ISO was actually uh, 240 in one month and 220 in the other, which is well above his career norms and higher than the league average. So, you know, July was a little closer to league average, but you'll take that if that's your worst month as a power hitter. Um, and the real culprit was just from June on, his BABIP was 229, 222, 242, and 250 in a shorter September. So, you know, it seems like there was a lot of just kind of bad luck there. Yeah, it was a tale of three seasons for Josh Bell. March through May, he hit 343 with an OPS over 1,100. From June to July, as Chris referenced, 213 batting average, 766 OPS. August and September, he hit 258 with an 892 OPS. And last year, he finished as the sixth best first baseman in Roto, the sixth best first baseman in points. And he was actually tied for third in fantasy points per game at the position with Edwin Encarnacion and... DJ LeMahieu. So someone who's always had a good eye at the plate started to raise the launch angle last year. Uh, seems like he was uh, finally figuring it out. And, you know, he went through a rough patch there, but he did bounce back to close out the season over those final two months. Yesterday, you guys bashed me for Manny Machado. Yeah. And maybe <laughs> do it again today. Rightfully so in some people's opinions. But now I have to defend my boy. I got to defend Manny Machado, and and I am going to present a bit of a conspiracy theory here, so, you know, strap up, get ready. Jeff Zimmerman pointed this out on Twitter a few months back. Manny Machado was hit by a pitch on his left arm on August 8th last season. Before that hit by pitch, his triple slash was 272, 340, 494, with 26 home runs, 65 runs scored, 69 RBI. After that hit by pitch, 217, 320, 382. If you take that pace from before the hit by pitch and put it and kind of extrapolate over 155 games, 36 home runs, 91 runs scored, 97 RBI, and he is someone who has consistently been dependable. He's played 156 or more games. I believe it's in the last four seasons. So he has been dependable. And if you want to use the argument of Petco against him, he did struggle there last year. I, I cannot make any excuses for Petco. The year before, however, because you guys referenced since he's left Camden, the year before in 29 games in Dodger Stadium, he hit 279 with an 874 OPS. I just think that we're discounting the fact that he is one season removed from hitting 297 and being a stalwart nice. atop the position. And I think before last year, he was a top six third baseman in both head-to-head points and in Roto Leagues. Last season seems like the outlier of all, and I understand it was in San Diego, but it was his first season after a mega contract. I mean, uh, why aren't right, we devaluing you, Bryce let, Harper as much as well? I'm going to let you go first, Chris. An outlier. <laughs> because that 2018 season was heavily, heavily weighted towards his time with the Baltimore Orioles. He hit 24 of his 37 home runs in 96 games there. Uh, hit 315 with a 963 OPS there. After the trade to the Dodgers, and hey, look, switching leagues is difficult. That is, hitters fare better the more they've seen pitchers. Uh, you've seen fewer National League pitchers when you make that switch, so that makes sense that he struggled. But still, hit 273, 338, 487, so an 825. 
OPS after the trade to the Dodgers. Manny Machado, for his career, outside of Camden Yards, is hitting 263 with a 772 OPS. Uh, his per 155 game pace, 25 home runs, 82 runs, 83 RBI, 9 stolen bases. Now, that's not entirely fair. He's become a much better power hitter as he's aged. I think he had, yeah, he was 14 and 12 home runs in his first two seasons. Now, one of them was a partial season, but still. He has been a dependable 30 home run guy, and I think you can expect him to hit 30 home runs this season. But his per 155 game pace since the trade from the Orioles is 261 average, 82 runs, 31 home runs, 89 RBI, and seven stolen bases. That's not bad by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not a top 50 pick. It's not a top 60 pick. That's yeah, I, the production you expect from Mike Moustakis, who is going around right. hunting. The, the numbers you were citing, Frank, like a 270-ish batting average, like a low to mid-800s OPS for a guy who's only eligible at the two deepest positions in fantasy, if those aren't those aren't great numbers. Those aren't those aren't in in a by a 2019 standard at least. Those aren't numbers that are uh, making anybody a standout anywhere. And that's that's kind of the point. Is he's still getting the benefit of the doubt as a standout here? And Chris Chris already got into it a little bit, but the what what really drives it home for me is it's in the 48 amazing stats column that I wrote that's been referenced a couple times on the podcast. Okay, so so basically in his three and a half years as an Oriole after breaking out, because you know, early in his career, Manny Machado was very young. He hadn't done much of anything yet. But by the time he became the Manny Machado we think of him as, three and a half seasons as an Oriole, he hit 285 with an 860 OPS overall. 285, 860 OPS. And at the time, those numbers were even better than they are now, because that was before the league-wide explosion. So good numbers, 285, 860 OPS. And a season, his road numbers in those three and a half seasons, 268 with a 787 OPS, clearly much worse on the road, 268, 787 OPS. In a season and a half since leaving the Orioles, his overall numbers, home and away, 261, 805 OPS, virtually identical to those road numbers during his time with the Orioles. And as I mentioned yesterday, I think the explanation for this his line drive rate is consistently subpar. It's around 17, 18% virtually every year of his career, um, or at least the last four seasons. And like, if you, that leads to a low BABIP. And if your BABIP is low and fewer of your balls are leaving the park, your batting average is going to go down. And obviously the OPS is going to go down along with it. So 260, 270 batting average, I think that's what we can pencil him in for at this point. And, uh, you know, probably 30 homers. But what? how much of an impact player is this in today's environment? I, I, it doesn't look like it's, it's that much. If Nolan Arenado was traded away from Colorado, where would he be drafted? I think he'd still be like a third-round pick, but I know what you're going to do. You're going to cite his roads and his stats <laughs> away from Coors Field. But the difference is, Camden Yards is a good place to hit home runs in particular. What makes Coors Field so different, though, is it's actually a large park. It's one of the biggest parks in baseball. It has some of the, the highest surface area in the game, if we want to get uh, into geometry. But the ball literally moves differently there than it does anywhere else. And so you have to adjust to seeing a different ball, basically, 
when you play in Coors Field versus when you play away. And that's why I mentioned it, I think yesterday or maybe the day before, that there's the Coors Field hangover effect, which is something that ha- there has been research on that shows, I think, pretty definitively that hitters hit worse in their first series away from Coors Field. Not only that. And but... one more thing, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's it's rarely would I say it's as simple as when a, when a hitter leaves a hitter-friendly environment, his road numbers become his base numbers. But when you have a season and a half of a guy who has demonstrated that already, I think you have to start to, you have to give it credence at that point. Yeah, I think I'm just giving Manny Machado the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I think the numbers I read, look, there's no proof of it, but before that hit by pitch, I mean, he did perform much better uh, versus after that hit by pitch. So maybe he was playing through something. Maybe I'm just kind of creating something where there's nothing. But I, I would not be surprised in the least bit if Manny Machado goes out and hits 275 to 280, 35 to 40 home runs, 90-plus runs, 100 RBI, and steals 10 bases. I mean, he's one season removed from stealing 14 bases. That would be a second- or third-round player, and you're getting him in, like, the fifth or sixth round right now. So I just see the profitability there. I don't know that it would. Certainly if he hits 280 with 40 home runs, maybe. If he hits 270 with 32 home runs, I mean, that that gets to be a pretty big difference, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I... the one, yeah, it just, I'm not sure he's going to be a dramatically better hitter than Marcelo Zuna this year uh, in terms of like a similar type of profile. I'm not sure he's going to be a, a dramatically better hitter than Reese Hoskins or Carlos Santana or Michael Conforto or guys who are pretty uh, He's better than Carlos Santana. Come on, Chris. Carlos Santana was a lot better than him last year. Yeah, but that was like a random breakout past age 30. But Carlos Santana usually hits 250, right? Yeah, 250 like to Machado's going to have a higher batting average than Santana. I, I mean, it seems like a lock for me. Uh, we've got to move on from Machado. I spent too much time on Machado, but I did want to kind of have the present both sides of the Manny Machado argument here. Uh, Chris, you gave us an outfielder earlier when I asked you for an infielder. Why don't you give me an infielder now uh, while... Scott and I transition into outfield. Uh, yeah, so I'll go with a player we haven't talked about much. We've talked about pretty much everyone on this list a lot, except for Wilson Ramos. Uh, Wilson Ramos is not someone who has gotten much love, and I think he's being drafted pretty close to his floor. You know, he was the number eight catcher in fantasy last season. He's being drafted as the number eight catcher now. Now, there are some guys who finished ahead of him or going behind him, but I think generally speaking, it, it seems safe to assume Uh, that he's not going to be much of a disappointment at that price. But I think there's a lot of room for uh, profit with him because his swing was just messed up last season. He's admitted it. He's talked about it. He hit the ball on the ground too much. And he's always been someone who hits the ball on the ground too much. But last year, he had the single lowest average launch angle in baseball. He had a zero launch angle. He did not have a launch angle last season (laughs) on it. Uh, Eric Hosmer had the lowest and the second lowest, and his was like 2.3. So there was actually a pretty sizable gap there. Um, and in what was a down year, he still hit 288. He has spent the offseason working to fix that flaw, trying to get the ball in the air more. He's never going to be Gary Sanchez. He's not going to be someone who hits a ton of fly balls. But if he hits more line drives and fewer fly ground balls and hits a few more fly balls, all of a sudden I think you're looking at someone who could conceivably hit 20 home runs. He was close to that pace in 2018. 
And I'm pretty sure he was the number one catcher on a per game basis in 2018. Uh, the bad ball metrics are all still pretty good. He hits the ball reasonably hard, uh, has a pretty high average accuracy velocity. And so for me, it just comes down to if he does get that launch angle back up to just being low and not, again, literally zero. I think there's a lot of room for Wilson Ramos to be one of the three or four best catchers in fantasy. Uh, and I'm kind of counting on it, especially when he's going 160th overall. I think I got him in that draft yesterday around there. So I had this question written down, and I'm happy you brought up the launch angle because I, I was going to ask you, what's higher, Ramos's launch angle or the number of The Wire episodes that I've seen in my life? Uh, yeah, push. Yeah, <laughs> the tr- it's a trick question because they're both zero. I had the same average uh, average launch angle as Wilson Ramos last season. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's not exactly how average launch angle goes. You can have a negative, but still, it's a funny joke. Laugh along. Ha <laughs> uh, ha. Chris, but you wouldn't make the argument that you would draft him over someone like Salvador Perez or Will Smith that's going just ahead of him, would you? I think he is less likely to hurt you than Will Smith or Salvador Perez are especially given the fact that your catchers tend to be the biggest place that they they tend to be a drain is batting average. And that is one of the hardest things to find in the current environment in fantasy baseball. And so the fact that he could conceivably be a really big help in batting average makes him, I, I think, a better option than those two. Yeah, I, I have not really, I don't think I've drafted Will Smith at all this year. Uh, there are some pretty big red flags in his profile, uh, especially with his contact rate. And Salvador Perez, I might have drafted once. So I, I would rather have Wilson Ramos than both. Uh, Scott, an outfielder. You know, I would ask you to give us an outfielder you haven't spoke, uh, haven't talked a lot about. But, you know, I've listened to the show before, and, and it seems like you have talked a lot about Solaire, J.D. Davis, <laughs> yeah. Mark Hanna. So I don't know if there's anything that you want to add to those three. They just seem like the Scott White guys. I know myself, right? <laughs> I mean, if, if, if I was going to break here and talk about uh, Gio or my utility spot, it would be Gio Urshela, who might be the single player I've talked about the most. So um, I so, guess if you've definitely talked about the least. Solaire? Yeah. yeah. That's who I was going to pick to talk about, yeah. Um, and look, 7-8 range in a 12-team league, that's, that's about where he goes those rounds. And if you're just looking at his numbers straight up, I mean, he hit 48 home runs last year, 117 RBI, respectable enough 265 batting average. I mean, just at face value, that's, that's a great value. I think there's a chance Jorge Soler found another gear in the second half and that there may be even better to come. He got his strikeout rate. The, the walk rate went up too, but the strikeout rate, it's what I'm going to focus on here. It was down to 23% in the second half, which is good. It's, it's just a good strikeout rate. It's not an amazing strikeout rate, but it's good. It allowed him to hit 299 without any Babbitt help. I mean, Totally normal BABIP in the second half. He hit 299. Not expecting Jorge Soler to hit 299 this year. I don't even know that I'm expecting him to have a 23% strikeout rate. But if if he can, if those were actual gains in skill, 
his batted ball profile starts to look a lot like Giancarlo Stanton. And not today's Char- Giancarlo Stanton, oh, hold who on. I am constantly deriding. Today's Giancarlo Stanton still has an elite batted ball profile. Sure, but I'm saying the batted ball profile specifically that Jorge Soler would have is the one that won Giancarlo Stanton in NL MVP in 2017. Uh, there's a chance Jorge Soler could be a top five outfielder this year. Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and say it. Yeah, there's a chance he could be a top five outfielder. I just reminded myself that the top five players are all outfielders. <laughs> so let's say a top six outfielder just to hedge my bet a little bit. But yeah, I think I think there's a chance he could be that that studly. And uh, obviously, I'll take a chance on him at the point where he's going. I would just say John Carlos Stanton had that strikeout rate for an entire season. And as you revel in pointing out, uh, that was a one-year wonder breakout, and he yep. reverted back to being the guy he's always been immediately upon uh, starting the next season. Yes, but if we did the same exercise with Trevor Story last year, we obviously won because Trevor Story did sustain the reduced strike. Yeah, but it, it, wasn't happened. For a whole, it wasn't for a half season. Okay, fair enough. I, I don't you- know that... I know what you're going to say because you say it often. Full season statistics are more <laughs> indicative than half season. You may word it a little differently, but that's what you say. Um, but it's not a universal truth, right? That that's just a correlation, and you can't you can't be so blinded by correlation that you're unwilling to even entertain the thought that there are many exceptions to that correlation. It's not a universal thing. Oh, I think the thought's plenty entertaining. I'll just I'll give people amused. I'll give people uh No, I drafted Jorge Soler this season. So I'm not okay. totally opposed to the idea. I just Yeah. I'm less sure of it. And and this goes for your entire team, basically. Uh and, and I think your philosophy yeah. does make sense. And I've I've applied this philosophy a few times. Basically, what you're the argument that you're making is that the industry as a whole tends to downplay the one-year wonders too much. And you yeah. don't want to pay full price for the one-year yeah. wonder. That's kind of what we're doing. It is what we're doing with Cody Bellinger. We're paying... And Fernando Tatis. Yeah, although that's different just because it is a he is a top prospect. We don't have the track record to fall back on. But I do agree that Tatis is being priced closer to his ceiling. In the case of most of the guys on your team, you know, I think Bell, Sano for sure. Sin, like, none of these guys are really being priced at their ceiling. I think Solaire is probably closer than that than most of these guys, but he's certainly not being drafted as if what he did last year was 100% for real. Of course not. I'll very clearly, uh, I'll very quickly mention my outfielder here. I don't want to spend too much time on this so we can move on to pitching, but uh, it is Ramon Laureano for me. That's the name I wanted to bring up uh, just because last year, 24 home runs, 13 stolen bases, uh, in under 130 games, so he missed some time with injury, but really started to take off in the second half. Small sample size, only 31 games, but he batted 358, OPS over 1,000. Uh, I don't think it's inconceivable that he can hit 25 home runs, 15 stolen bases with you know, a solid batting average. I think that he can kind of be a an Austin Meadows light type player, and you're getting him about 50 picks later in drafts right now. So probably more useful in Roto, but... I will point out that in a points league, 
Uh, he has a 350. He had a 355 career OBP, and he uh, improved the walk rate in the second half as well. So Ramon Laureano, is someone that I'm very interested in this season. Can we just rattle off our lineups real quick so people can nod along and say, "Yeah, that does sound like somebody he'd like." Absolutely. <laughs> Go ahead, Scott. All right, I'll do mine first. Mitch Garver is my catcher. Josh Bell, as I mentioned, first baseman. DJ LeMahieu at second. <laughs> Miguel Sano at third. Marcus Simeon at shortstop, an outfield of Jorge Soler, J.D. Davis, and, of course, Mark Canna. And then my utility player, as I mentioned, is Gio Urshela. Chris? Uh, Catchers, Wilson Ramos. First baseman's Luke Voigt. Second baseman, Keston Hira. Third base, Yoan Mankata. Shortstop, Corey Seager. Nick Castellanos, Fran Mil Reyes, and Kyle Tucker in the outfield. And Nelson Cruz as my utility. I almost went with Kyle Tucker in my outfield. I well, he's did. not your guy, Scott. He's my guy. Yeah, that would have been, we 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 would have both claimed him. That would have been that would have been an interesting custody battle. I think that there's only overlap at pitcher for us, okay. at start pitcher and relief pitcher for right. any of us. What about you, Frank? Nobody even knows what you think of anybody unless they happen to listen to your old podcast. <laughs> yeah. So at catcher, I have uh, Salvador Perez, Jose Abreu. No surprise there. Ozzy Albie, someone I've mentioned, I have ranked as my number one second baseman. Uh, Manny Machado, I tried my hardest to make the case. Javier Baez, Bryce Harper, Ramon Laureano, Fran Mil Reyes, who I had in my breakouts column, and then Chris Davis at Utility, who I drafted yesterday in the mock draft in round 15. Uh, reminder, don't forget about Chris Davis because he's lower down the list because he's Utility only, but I think he can bounce back. I mean, maybe not to 40 home runs, but I think 35 home runs is within the range of realistic well, outcomes for Chris Davis. I think he could easily come back and hit 40 home runs prorated to 162-game season, depending on what we get. I think that's 100% within the realm of possibility. Yeah. I think he was just hurt last season. Yeah, yeah, and that's the argument that I made. If you read it at CBS Sports, uh, it basically last year he kind of ran into a wall uh, trying to make a play in the field on May 5th, and his numbers before then, while he was hitting 229, not the 247 that we're used to, uh, he did have 10 home runs uh, by the time May 5th came around. And if, if you uh, if you kind of stretch that out over 150 games, or 155 games, it was like 35 home runs. So that's why I'm saying like 35 might be more realistic. He's getting up there in age. Maybe you know, we are starting to see a little bit of a downturn in his career, but I still think a lot of the what happened last year is related to that injury. So I would agree with you, Chris. But let's move on to uh, pitchers here. And and Scott, why don't you kind of read out all your pitchers, and then we'll kind of we'll go through one starting pitcher, one closer as well, uh, similar to how we did with the offensive players. Sure. So my starting rotation is Shane Bieber, Patrick Corbin. You can see it's already higher end than my lineup, which is how I draft. Uh, Sonny Gray, Zach Gallen, and Lance Lynn. My relievers are Giovanni Gallegos and then a Sparp, Josh James. Chris, yep. what do you have for pitching? I have Charles Morton, Zach Gallen, Matthew Boyd, Mitch Keller, and Jordan Montgomery. So obviously much lower end than Scott's guys, <laughs> which is also how I draft. My number uh, and then my four starter is your number two starter. Exactly. And then my relief pitchers are Edwin Diaz and some overlap, Giovanni Gallegos. We 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 both have that guy. So Scott Lego I, my Gallegos. <laughs> <laughs> so Scott, Scott and I do overlap. We have two of the same guys. We're sharing custody. Uh, I get holidays and weekends. 
<laughs> you guys shared a few. Uh, you guys shared a starting pitcher and a relief pitcher. And uh, Chris, you and I actually share a starting pitcher here because I have Jacob Degrom, who I took fourth overall in the mock draft yesterday. I have Charlie Morton, who yes, shared custody. Chris, I have Frankie Montas. I have Max Freed. Um, Three out of those, actually all four of those were players that I drafted in the mock draft yesterday. Uh, Joe Musgrove, and then I have Ken Giles and Brandon Workman as my relief pitchers. So, Scott, I mean, who's a who's a pitcher, whether it's a reliever or starting pitcher, uh, that maybe, you know, you haven't revealed to the listening audience uh, why you like them as much as you do this season? Uh, hmm, who have I talked about the least here? Sonny Gray? It's either Gray or Lynn, I think. Let's talk about Sonny Gray because I feel like he had one of those crazy historic second half runs, kind of like you, Darvish, kind of like uh, Jack Flaherty, but his doesn't get nearly as much attention. So we'll start there with him. Sonny Gray over his final 15 starts at a 194 ERA, 0.95 whip, 11. K's per nine. And of course, his season long numbers are terrific too. Nobody drafts him anywhere close to that. It's like, and I get it. Like, Sonny Gray has had seasons where he looked like an ace and then he would collapse the next year. He's had a very up and down career. It's been difficult to pin him down. He has faked us out more than a few times and we're scared of it happening again. He was never as good as he was last year, specifically with the strikeouts. And, uh, like, the Reds, from hiring Kyle Body of uh, driveline sure. baseball to to what happened with all of their starting pitchers last year, they, they really seem to have a handle on what it takes to make pitchers good. If you'll remember, they acquired Sonny Gray from the Yankees last year and immediately signed him to a long-term deal because they were that confident they were going to get the best out of him. And uh, he talked about how they, they kind of gave him the cheat code last year. They, they improved his slider uh, to get the maximum output from it. And obviously, he became an elite strikeout pitcher at that point in a way that didn't compromise his natural ground ball tendency. So now he's that perfect combination of keeping batted balls in the park and also limiting batted balls to begin with. And I, I think that... That very clearly sets him up for an ace run here. Yeah, when it comes to Sonny Gray last year, uh, they also brought in pitching coach Derek Johnson from the Milwaukee Brewers in, and he was actually the the college coach of Sonny Gray. So I think that there was some familiarity there, and he got the best out of Sonny Gray. You mentioned, I've seen some skepticism in the industry around Sonny Gray, and that skepticism revolves around not believing that his breaking pitches are as good as they really are. But last year, the slider was top 12 in Fangraph's pitch value. The curveball was top 5 in Fangraph's pitch value. So it basically comes down to, do you trust the strides that he made with his breaking pitches last year? And for me, the answer is yes as well, because I have yeah. him ranked as my SP23. So I'm, I'm very high on Sonny Gray as well, and, and I don't mind him as, you know, if you play in a deeper league, like a 15-teamer or deeper as your SP2, but ideally, if you play in a 12-teamer, uh, your SP3. And and you can very realistically get him there. My understanding is that he actually changed the way he threw his slider. It's not like it just randomly became better. Yeah. Uh, the, let me, what he let me said, see if I can find the quote. 
Yeah, what he talked about early, I think it was in spring training or maybe very early on in the season, but it was basically the Yankees wanted him to throw his breaking pitches for strikes. They wanted him to throw his slider in the strike zone the way Masahiro Tanaka does. The Yankees have been one of the the least fastball-heavy teams in the majors, and they, they really like their guys to throw breaking pitches in the strike zone early in the count. And I, I believe what he said uh, was that he's more comfortable using the slider, throwing it in the dirt, getting chases with it, putting guys away rather than setting them up. Yeah, I'm so pretty sure that. And I maybe have I may have it completely backwards. But I, I had it, I had it linked in the article, but you changed the formatting of my articles. So yeah, I have to go hunt for it again. <laughs> uh, you're getting some uh, on the podcast behind the scenes drama here between Scott White and Chris Tower. <laughs> well, I sent a template to everyone, and Scott decided I hate that template. <laughs> But Not exactly how it went. The thing is, I saw the template after it was already built, and I was I, like, yeah. "I'm the boss. <laughs> I decide what the template looks like." Yeah. Okay. Chris, how did I do? Yours was fine. Yeah, it was good. Oh, it's thanks. Follow instruction. <laughs> yeah, I copy and pasted your template to rebuild Scott's. <laughs> oh, very nice, uh, Chris. Who's a pitcher, uh, whether it's a starter or a reliever, that uh, maybe you haven't talked about enough here on the podcast that made it his way onto your All Star team? I don't think we've talked enough about Jordan Montgomery. We talked about him a little bit during spring training, then he sort of got forgotten. I really like Jordan Montgomery. He's got a four pitch mix that he's willing to throw. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of similar to how I feel about Zach Gallen. He's got a four pitch mix that he's willing to throw in you know pretty much any count there the fastball i think as a rookie was not great but the breaking pitches were pretty good and his velocity was up in spring training which is a good sign at the beginning of the season he was throwing like 93 94 um i just think as someone you can draft as one of your last starting pitchers even a bench starting pitcher i think jordan montgomery's got the chance to give you a mid three zra uh, close to a strikeout per inning, and with the Yankees bullpen and offense behind him, you know I think he could win 13 or 14 games, and and that's really valuable at the place he's getting drafted. I think he's pretty safe. Yeah, I don't think that's crazy. Back in 2017, uh, he had a 3.88 ERA, one two three WHIP, and mm -hmm. an above average slider and curveball. You mentioned the four pitch mix. He has decent strikeout stuff. 12.2 uh, percent swinging strike rate, over eight Ks per nine. So. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot to like with Jordan Montgomery. Um, and, and you don't really, I guess the one worry you would have is, I guess, Domingo Herman eventually returning from suspension. But even still, I mean, that's, what, like 60 games into the season? And they're, they're I think it's, yeah, I guess it's 60 games into the season. But they're down two starters now. And so, you know, I think Jordan Montgomery now is the fourth starter. Because they're not getting Luis Severino back. I think it's more likely that whoever was the fifth starter, you know, Chance Adams or... Oh God, I've lost, I've completely lost the other names that were, yeah, Davy Garcia was one of them. Uh, I, I think Michael it's more King. like, whoever, yeah, whoever the number five starter is, has a better chance of losing that role when Domingo Armand comes back than Jordan Montgomery. So I think Montgomery is the five now because we were excluding Paxton before and now Paxton will be in there. So I have it as Cole, Tanaka, Paxton, Hap, and Montgomery is the five. Okay, that's fair. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, so just wanted to point that out. Uh, my starting pitchers, I mentioned uh, DeGrom, Morton, Frankie Montas, Max Freed. I know you guys have talked all uh, about these guys a ton already. Uh, Joe Musgrove, I'll just point out uh, when it comes to uh, Joe Musgrove, something that 
Scott, uh, something Chris has said about the Pirates pitching staff a lot is that Ray Searidge is no longer the pitching coach there. They're going more analytically driven. And Searidge is someone who kind of wanted the pitchers to use fastball sinker more. And that's something that hurt Joe Musgrove because he actually has uh, better breaking pitches and he has good command. And over the final, it's extremely small sample size, but it was the final four games last year. He, he doubled his curveball usage and saw some really nice results. He also saw an uptick in velocity, something that was carrying over in spring training. He was hitting like 93, 94 consistently with the fastball. So Joe Musgrove is just, he's another one of these guys that I just can't quit. Uh, but those are our, also, you guys have anything on, on Joe Musgrove? I, I was just going to say yep. the amount of race here, damage race Searage did to that organization <laughs> at the, in the end, like they, they lived by race Searage when they had that, that good stretch where they made the playoffs a few years in a row and they died by race Searage. It was just in the end because it worked out so well with like AJ Burnett and Francisco Liriano and Jay Hatt during his brief time there. And Edinson Volquez. Yeah. Like he, he, he redeemed these pitchers and became like a pitching coach legend, but then he ruined all of their, (laughs) their young guys that were up and coming and were going to give this, this dominant rotation for years to come. And now other organizations, mainly the Rays, are going to reap the benefits. Yeah, that's a really good point because whenever pitchers would land with the Pirates, it was like when Chris Archer went there, for example, I said, oh, it's the Ray Searage effect. You know, Ray Searage will just get his hands on Chris Archer and, you know, he'll make him a great pitcher like he has with everyone else. But uh, it did not work out that way. So really good point there uh, from Scott. You can see all of our all-stars over at CBSSports.com. All three articles are currently there at the website. Emails. I wanted to get into some emails here at the end of the show. Fantasy baseball at cbsi.com. Uh, still answering ones that are left on Apple Podcast Review. Uh, and this one comes from the Apple Podcast Review, and it's from uh, Trenton Andrew. He wants to know about Adalberto Mondesi. I know in points leagues he has his issues, but in terms of roto leagues, I think there is a real possibility he goes 25 home runs, 50 stolen bases. 280 average, 100 runs, 90 RBI, which would be a first-round return. Am I crazy for targeting him in rounds two or three in Roto drafts? I mean, if he did that, he might be a contender for the number one overall player in any given season, and I don't think that's happening. I think the the stolen bases, you might be underselling him. He's got 60 steal potential. You know, he stole, what, 43 in like 120 games last season or something like that. I, I think there's there's room for him to lead the majors in steals by a dozen uh, if he stays healthy. The problem is the plate discipline's awful, so I think 100 runs is like the upper, upper limit playing in a bad lineup. He's going to have like a 310, 320 on base percentage in the kind of best-case scenario. So already that, the 280 average, he'd have to have like a 360 BABIP, I would think, to really hit like 280. And it's possible with his speed, and he does hit the ball reasonably hard, but I'm certainly not betting on it. And then the home runs, we'll see how he comes back from the shoulder surgery. You know, he had a torn labrum. That's a really tough one to come back from. Yeah, he he was, we talked about Jesse Winker the other day and how all the encouraging trends that had me so high on him last year just fell off. They went the wrong way. And that's kind of what happened to Adalberto Mondesi, too. It's certainly with, I, like, I think it's within the realm of possibility. I, I think these numbers are in the range of possible outcomes, but they're they're at the near the very high end of it, and most likely looks 
much, much lower than that, specifically with the batting average and the home runs. And frankly, even the runs scored, he's only, he only scored 58 in 102 games last year because his on-base percentage was 291. It's a bad lineup, you know? Like 100 runs scored, even that might be a stretch. Yeah, this is like a 95th percentile outcome or better. And especially for me, the biggest, um, the biggest, you know, liability here is batting average. I mean, 263 last year, his expected batting average, according to StatCast, was 237. So, I mean, the batting average of everything, uh, and likely the power, is probably what I would be most skeptical about here. From Baker in Charleston, this was also another Apple podcast review. You guys were low on Strasburg due to last season's workload. Does this extra uh, rest change your perception? Uh, Strasburg's ADP right now is 23. He is the sixth starting pitcher off the board. Let me just point out, this this, does, this email does not speak for everybody. Yeah, I think it's right? only, it speaks for Adam. I'm lower on Strasburg, but not because of the workload. Well, you're, 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 you don't trust, you're saying we downgraded him for injury history in the past and we shouldn't any less this year. That That is something you said, right? Yes. Yeah. So does it change your opinion? Uh, I don't know if a condensed schedule makes it more, because one of the things we have to keep in mind here is these guys were ramping up for the start of the season for a month before things were shut down. You know, I a little bit more than a month and then they're gonna have to try to keep in shape i would imagine they're still throwing during this time period probably not at full strength but then they're gonna have a shortened amount of time to get back up to full strength and then they're gonna have to try to pitch in games in a probably shortened season in a condensed schedule where there are going to be more games and fewer off days i don't know for sure that it creates more injury risk it feels like it probably does. I don't think this is good for pitchers. This next one comes from Josh in, from Columbus, Ohio. After drafting my Yahoo 5x5 category league the first weekend of spring training, I hadn't looked at my team considering the epidemic delaying baseball. When bored two days ago, I looked at my team and saw a trade proposal of me giving up Ramon Laureano and getting Luis Robert and Archie Bradley. I instantly accepted and... Was this the right move? Grade the trade. A plus. Scott? Yeah, A plus seems A plus. really high. A. I rank Robert and Loriano pretty close. I mean, uh, yeah, I'll take I'll take the side you you accepted, but it's like a B minus, maybe a B. I'll go B. Yeah, I'm closer to Scott on this one. Uh just a little sneak peek into the rankings. I have Ramon Loriano at 17 in the outfield, and this is for Roto, and I have Luis Robert at 22. So just in a vacuum, I would rather have Ramon Laureano, but if you need the relief pitcher help, if you need a closer, if you need saves, I mean, although I do have my concerns over Archie Bradley, then sure, it's a, it's a fine trade. I, I would probably say B or B- minus as well. I think, the Chris, most, I think the most likely outcome between Luis Robert and Ramon Laureano is pretty similar. I think Luis Robert's a better bet to hit for power I think Loriano is probably a better bet for batting average, but I think the stolen bases will be pretty similar. I think Luis Robert actually has much more potential, but we're not sure he's going to get to run given the way the White Sox have managed their young prospects lately. But there's no question that the upside for Luis Robert is significantly higher. Uh, if, you're, if you're talking about the sheer upside, it, it looks a lot like what Fernando Tatis did in 
a partial season last season. You know, you're, you're talking about a guy who could hit 300, who could hit 30-plus home runs, who could steal 30-plus bases. Ramon Laureano doesn't have that potential. I don't love Archie Bradley, but getting something in addition to Archie Bradley, to Luis Robert, when I think him and Ramon Laureano are pretty similar and Laureano has less upside, I think it's an obvious win. I would probably agree. I, w- I wouldn't. I'm not going to say probably. I would agree that Robert has more upside than Loriano, but I don't want to downplay the upside of Loriano, though. I mean, two years in a row, he's hit 288. So even if that regresses a little bit, I, I think based on what he did last year, it's possible he hits 30 home runs with 20 steals. It'd be really tough in that park. That, that, that's the thing. It's a really hard park. He's in a really good spot, too, in the lineup. Uh, projected to bat second. I mean, between Semyon and Matt Olson, that's a. I mean, that's a better spot to hit in than where we expect Robert, you know, to be lower in the lineup. No, I I agree with that. I I just, I don't think he has near, and maybe I'm wrong, I just don't think he has near the the power upside, particularly. Scott, you sent us a uh, a personality quiz yesterday. I finally did it (laughs) today, and my number one result... Samuel Tarley, who was third on your list. So there you go. We have oh, something in common. Our lists are pretty. I want to see your whole list now. Yeah, uh, so this is a. My top five a, was uh, Samuel Tarley, Leonard Hofstadter from The Big Bang Theory, uh, yeah. Chandler Bing from Friends, Bruce Ooh, he Banner. Wasn't the top of mine. Okay, uh, Bruce Banner was up there for me. Yeah. And I got Glenn from Walking Dead. That was my top five. I, uh, yeah, I did it. And I think you guys both agreed that the results just didn't match who I am. So I'm going to have to take it again and <laughs> be a little more self-critical with, uh, with my answers. There's some tough yeah, questions on there. <laughs> there it's, it's, it's a, okay. So it was a personality test that yeah, was trending on Twitter yesterday. And it's kind of, it's not like the Buzzfeed stuff. It's, it's, it's with the idea of being more scientific. It has like, I think 461 characters from across all different franchises. And it gives you a percentage of how compatible you are with this character's personality based on uh, 27, 28 question where you, you, you kind of slot you there's sliders and it's like two opposite ends of a personality trait and you slide what you are to one end or the other. So there's definitely an element of you have to be good at assessing yourself, which I'm not sure any, I'm not sure many of us really are. Um, but some of us are definitely better at it than others. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's fun looking at the results. It's fun looking at the ones that obviously you're most compatible with and the ones you're least compatible with. I got Dale Horvath as my number one, uh, from the walking dead, the first two seasons of the walking dead. So we're talking a long time ago at this point. He's like the Um, old guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. With the floppy hat. I could see you rocking a bucket hat and RV. (laughs) I agree on the bucket hat for sure. Yeah. Scott, um, can you do the next show in a bucket hat? Is that what it's called, a bucket hat? <laughs> I don't know if what he has specifically is a bucket hat, but uh, I, regardless, I would hat. like you to do the show in a bucket hat. That'd be great. Uh, well, uh, okay, yeah, that's. <laughs> I could understand why you'd like that. Adams was the best. Adam got Marge Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, didn't didn't Samuel Tarley rank highly for you as well, or am I imagining that? No, he ranked highly for for Scott. Yeah, so Samuel, Obi-Wan Kenobi was number two for me. And then Samuel was third. Brand the Broken was four. And uh, and yeah, I can't remember who came after that. But yeah, it was fun. It was fun. 
uh, it was fun seeing like different baseball beat writers were posting their results and uh, I feel like I know a lot more about them based on that. <laughs> Lindsay Adler, who covers the Yankees for uh, the athletic nurse was all like notorious villains at the top, like Joffrey. <laughs> so Joffrey <laughs> I think, was my, I think the Joker from the dark Knight was in her top 20. <laughs> Joffrey was my least compatible. He was like lowest oh, of all of them. So no evil you. here. I am pure, like Sam I Tarly. Throw, I would throw myself off a building like Tommen if Joffrey was my top choice. <laughs> if you guys want to take part in the personality quiz, go check it out. It's over on Scott White's Twitter. But we got to wrap it up for today. Our all-stars are over at CBSSports.com. We also gave you some of our Flashback Friday obscure players that you know we could never quit. For Scott White and Chris Towers, I am Frank Sample. Thank you all for listening. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.